Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you guys. So glad that you are here. And I'm excited to look at this passage of scripture. Uh, If you're watching online, we're really glad that you're here as well. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention, um, thank you so much for abiding by um, Paradance's uh, vaccination uh, requirements and uh, their mask wearing. I know it's not uh, fun to sit in a room for, you know, an hour, hour and a half and um, two hours, three hours. I'm not just kidding. you know, uh, I, had a, I had a ton of great emails this week and uh, a handful of people asking me, like, uh, questions about reunion, what we're about, what we want to do. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention that Brandon was talking about is the best way to find out about a community is to be in the community. And so these uh, community groups are really actually a unique opportunity um, to go at a trial run. Uh, who these people are, do I like them, do I want to be around them, uh, do, uh, is there alignment theologically, all of those things. Um, do we want to learn, do we want to grow together? And so I would just encourage you, if you, are, um, if you have questions, we are planning like a newcomers gathering. Uh, I believe it's November 14th and you're going to be hearing more about it. It's a great place to ask questions, but an even better place would be inside of those community groups where um, we're sitting around the table uh, learning and growing together in that way. And so uh, look forward to that. Last week we started in Mark 1.1 and we're talking about this, um, our stories coming up under the story of Jesus. That hit the story that God is telling in the book of Mark, we're just getting sort of swept up in and um, we're bringing our stories in. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to think about your life for a second and the ways that your story um, is bringing a perspective. Um, and you came this morning, you have questions, you have doubts, uh, you have thoughts about God, you have thoughts about what it looks like to be in a church community, and wherever you're at in that journey, uh, the book of Mark honors that, and I, I love, that's really why I want to spend the time to do this, is that your story, your perspective, whatever it is that you're even wrestling with, um, can really, the questions can really get answered uh, through this, and so I don't want to settle for overly simplistic answers to complex questions, and I think we do that so often in our culture, and so let's not do that. Uh, let me pray as we begin, and we'll wrestle together today in this text here in Mark 1. Uh, God, I love you, and uh, I believe that you are telling a great story um, through your son Jesus, um, and not just back then, um, but now. And um, I pray that you'll be doing that uh, through our community right now this morning. And um, I just pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you uh, as we look at this. And God, would you make it real? Uh, I, I don't want to just talk about ideas that engage our brain and then we leave here and move on. But I want to be uh, changed by the power of your spirit. And so um, may that happen today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So our passage today uh, is uh, one of the few that's actually captured in all four Gospels. And the reason is, is because it's absolutely crucial to understand Jesus's work and his ministry. Um, In fact, you might call it like an identity shifting moment. And you've had these in your life. Um, It could have been a transition from a job. It could have been a a time of graduation, moving into a sort of a next phase. It could have been a marriage. Um, But historically, there's been rites of passage that have uh, helped us understand our stage of life. And so in the Maasai culture in, um, in Kenya, there is a rite of passage. Uh, a boy is removed from his mother. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's actually part of a, a rigid um, steps that's to be taken in a rite of passage, re- the removal of the feminine. And what this boy is to do is to go out of the tribes, the protection of the tribe, and he's to go kill a lion. And when he comes back, he's proved himself as a man. And if he doesn't come back, he's neither, I guess. He's not alive or a man. So the identity 
is shifting, right? There's a, a step. It's a sort of rite of passage. It's a marker in the journey towards uh, maturity. And we have these, and that's what also we see in the text. One that I was reading about this week that was really profound, um, there's a small island near Fiji called Vanatu, and uh, there's a group of men who have this uh, initiation rites in their village, and it's called land diving. And so April or May, uh, around this time of year, they celebrate a yam harvest, and they build these wooden towers. I'll show you a picture of it here. They build these um, wooden towers. That's not it, Elizabeth, but that's fine. <laughs> there you go. And so they build these towers, and sometimes they can get up to 100 feet high. And, and what they do, this is absolutely crazy, is um, they gather up all the courage they have. They tie the, the vines around their feet, and then they attach it. And the higher you go, the more manly you are in the culture. And you jump. And the, the goal is, uh, is not only how high, but how close to the ground you also get on the way down. And they jump off. And so this was uh, started 15 centuries ago, and uh, it serves as a rite of passage for the tribe's boys to become men. And as crazy as this might sound to us, it's actually helpful in one sense because there's clear markers. You know, right? A, a boy in this culture knows I'm no longer a boy, but I'm a man. There's clarity that is taking place. And in Luke chapter 3, uh, in, 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 um, in our passage today, this is what's happening. In Luke chapter 3, uh, I think it's verse 23, it says something like, um, and Jesus at this time was th- about 30 years of age. And so 30 years of relative obscurity. We don't know a lot about the first 30 years of Jesus's life. It's like we, we get a, a little bit of detail and then all of a sudden Jesus steps onto the scene. He's baptized in three years of ministry and that's the, the primary portion of the Gospels. And one of the things I was thinking about this week is um, Jesus has done no miracles up until this point of his baptism. Uh, little teaching. Uh, he doesn't have any disciples. But then this, this baptism happens and then everything is unleashed. And we're going to talk about why that is. But Jesus is no longer the son of Mary. He's, he's the son of God now. And so this, we're going to follow this passage along and we'll look at the father's joy, the son's submission, and then the spirit's leadership. And I love this passage of scripture because if you take the time to like settle in it, it's very vivid. So here it is in Mark chapter 1, um, starting in verse 9. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so Jesus travels from Nazareth to the Jordan. We, we don't think anything of it. It's very passive. It's actually a 10-day journey at least. And so Jesus has been walking. And I sort of picture Jesus walking to the Jordan to be baptized by John, um, questioning. Like, what have I been doing up to this point in my life? We do learn that in the scriptures that Jesus is a carpenter. And so he's been working, but he's kind of... Um, thinking to himself, I could go back to that way of life, but he also knows what's ahead. And we find that out through Mark. He knows what's ahead. And so this 10-day journey is probably one where he's thinking, should I listen to my father? Should I just go back to my normal way of life? And then, like, just with, like, Mark has no, um, Mark has no tact. Everything is just so abrupt. He's baptized by John in the Jordan, and then it says this. And when he came up out of the water, it's like there's no conversation. There's no process here. Jesus has been dunked, and it says this. He comes up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. 
with you I'm well pleased. This is this powerful moment where the Trinity is present. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And and early on, this is actually a, a claim about who God is. That God is one God in three modes of being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we struggle, right? We, we try to come up with uh, metaphors about the Trinity and ice and water and H- all these things. We try to like, uh, but they all seem to fall apart at some point. So why, why do we struggle to understand this concept? And one is simply that uh, Trinity is mysterious. Trinity is mysterious. There are things that we can't comprehend But what can we understand? Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And I love this picture that the the Trinity is a sort of dance. I've heard uh, the Trinity called a divine dance. They're in perfect community or relationship to the other. What does that mean? Um, In one sense, it means that God is not lonely. Like God is not bored. He wasn't up in heaven one day and thought, you know what would be cool? If we just invented some people to hang out with, right? Like we we could live on this planet or they could live on this planet and swirl around the galaxy and we we could watch them, right? We could watch them win sometimes. We could watch them fail sometimes. They'll go to work. They'll seek love and and purpose. And then, of course, we'll make some of them live on that one island, right? In that one city. We'll put a lot of people on that one island and we'll make like no bathrooms available to anyone on that one island, right? We'll just play with them. No, see, God, God is not lonely. That's not it. In fact... The scripture portrays God as in perfect relationship in and of himself, the Godhead, the Trinity, three modes of being. And so the very essence of the Trinity is a sort of self-giving love where each member of the Trinity keeps pointing at the other. I, 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 I kind of came up with this meme. And so, I don't know, that probably breaks down at some point. But the point is, is what are they doing? It's, it's self-directing, right? Yes, you can take a picture of it. It's fine. Pointing at the other one, saying, no, I'm, I defer. I defer to you. I defer to you. I defer to you. And so why is this important? You're like, this is, this is great, right? But what is, what's, why is that important? God is modeling in the Trinity, in the first like 10 verses here, how to be in relationship with other people, how to love other people, right? I said that before, this sort of self giving love and we can learn from this self-giving love you know i don't know if any of you um saw there was an opinion piece it actually um came on thursday it was opinion essay in the new york times um and the title of it was divorce can be an act of radical self-love and uh intense title i know in the essay, though, the, the author shares her journey, and um, hear me really well, the author shares her journey so vulnerably, um, so clearly, and really get, gives a really great picture of the complexities of marriage and family uh, and, and children. And she shares um, what marriage and divorce has meant for uh, her career and for her children and, um, and what it looks like for uh, women to be in the workplace. And I, it really gave me a lot to think about in terms of how we value women in the workplace. And I, I think there's quite a bit to learn. I, I struggled, though, with this one line in the article. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Um, but this quote, really, I struggled with. She said, I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. 
And I'll be honest, I was wrestling primarily because I am a child of divorced parents. And so my parents divorced when I was, uh, when I was seven years old. And that statement, in fact, made me angry. I'm like, what about the children? Like, I have a lot more questions. I, got, I have pushbacks. And I had to sort of, kind of sort of slow myself down because what I realized is I was reacting personally. My, I think for my sisters and I, this was a major marker in our family's life, the breakdown of our family, a, a severing, right, of relationship. And I can't even imagine the pain and the, the frustration and the confusion and the conversations that my parents had in this journey. But if, if we approach relationships in this way, I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him, but because I love myself more. Who wants to be in that relationship where the other person is constantly thinking, what, it, what, what is it for me? What about me? What do, I, what do I get from this relationship? And the Trinity is, is actually showing us here how to be or exist in relationship with one another where we're pointing to the other. I, I thought... Um, I can't write this article, I'm not that smart, but I was thinking of it the other way. Divorce can be an, a radical uh, act of self-love. I thought, what if we did it the other way? Marriage can be an act of radical self-sacrifice, and sacrifice is beautiful, right? It takes time and repetition, but, and it's tough, but this is what the, the Trinity is beginning to teach us. But even more than that, what, what, what else is this saying? Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, and verse 11 says this, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And what are you getting here? The father's joy. God has spoken audibly and he's saying, you are my kin. You are my joy. I'm delighted in you. I'm proud of you. And the, the Greek word is agapetos. Like you are esteemed. You are dear to me. You are beloved. You know that times in your life. I hope you know times in your life when you've heard um, words spoken to you with such depth and value. Where someone really saw you for who you were and loved you. Maybe it was a parent. They, they, they say, I'm pleased with you. I'm so proud of you for graduating. I would do anything for you. I love what you're working on. And to just allow someone to see in your soul in that way. But see, one of the things that's so important about Jesus' moment of baptism is his father says, you are my son whom I love in you I'm well pleased. But what, what, is, what is God looking at Jesus and, and saying, I'm so pleased about? He's lived in relative obscurity, right? He's done nothing uh, the, the Father is going to ask of him yet, right? So what is it that he's done? And, 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 and this is exactly the point. He has no followers. He's healed no one. Um, he really hasn't done anything. And the Father looks at him and says, you are my beloved son. And what's the point? The point is this. Your identity, who you are, who you and I are, is freely given to us and it is not gained. And the same voice that spoke over Jesus actually speaks life into us, right? Throughout the scriptures, um, Paul does it, Peter does it. Um, they call us this word agapitos, the, the beloved, that you and I are sons and daughters of God. And, and the truth is, is we don't even know that we're doing this, but we're actually wrestling with that idea of sonship constantly. We're wrestling constantly to hear the voice of the Father. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And sometimes I think what happens is we get it here, right? Like we, we get things here, but it doesn't take like that 14-inch journey to our hearts. 
a couple years ago, my friend was telling me about how crazy youth sports has gotten, even um, since many of us were, were in it. Um, crazy parents coaching from the sidelines, like running on the field, arguing with the coaches, like hoping that their kids make it. And my friend said, um, I encourage my son to play well, but he said, I have a phrase that I use to tell my son how proud I am of him. And he just says this, I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play. And I'm like, Rose is two, but I'm taking this to heart already. Yesterday, she's playing and she peed like on this like fake turf. And I'm just like, so irritating. Like, I don't even know how you clean that up. It's just like, whatever, I don't even know what's happening. But we get her changed and we're kicking the soccer ball. And I, I had already written this and I was just like, oh buddy, I love to watch you play. Don't pee anymore on, on the grass, but I want her to have a sort of, as best I can, I'm sure, you know, we'll screw her up in some ways, but like as best as possible, like how can I build into her a sense of security, right? Where she doesn't wonder, I didn't play that well, or, you know, like, I don't, I want to push her. So I got to, I got to learn the tension. I got a little bit of time, but I think this, this perfectly encaps, encapsulates the idea, like, how can I be proud of her just for who she is, that she's my beloved, that she's my child, and to teach her your identity is freely given to you. It's not gained. And so what this does to us, actually, is it brings us to a fork in the road constantly. And this is where I want you to be thinking about your life and your work and the relationships that you're in. There's sort of a fork in the road. We can freely accept this given identity to us, that, that you are secure and safe and complete just as you are because you are God's beloved. And we can accept that. Or, and we do this constantly, subconsciously, we can concoct an identity apart from God. And, and we're constantly doing this, right? Um, you ever notice in your life, um, you can get like thousands of encouragements and you get one critique or one negative and it's just like, that's the thing that you focus on, that's the thing. Uh, we're subconsciously wrestling this in the middle of our days, right? When we're shopping for shoes on, on, our, on our lunch, right? We're caring about what other people might think of how we look or how we dress. It's why we curate our social media and take two hours to write captions. I'm like, I can do the picture. The caption takes forever. Anybody with me, please don't leave me alone here, okay? It's why we work endlessly, tirelessly into the night. We live in a city that is insisting that we make a name for ourselves or prove ourselves. Remember, what do you hear? If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? But the truth is, is that is exhausting. Because what does it mean? It means we have to prescribe our self-worth and then achieve that said self-worth. Exhausting. I love how Henry Nouwen puts it, and if you're, you're gonna hang out with me, I love long quotes, and so uh, hang with me here. Henry Nouwen, um, Catholic priest, says this. Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but actually self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. And so like success and popularity and power are like the, uh, the side effects uh, of the self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless, unlovable, then success and popularity and power are actually perceived as attractive solution. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as long as I'm rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. 
My dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. And so what does that mean? It means a lot of our striving for popularity or success or a certain look or a certain vibe or whatever it may be is actually covering up the fact that we're not accepting our belovedness. And so we become under-attuned to the voice of the one who says, I love you, I'm well-pleased with you, you are my son, you are my daughter. And we become over-attuned to the voice of uh, people around us or the culture at large. And I have to wonder sometimes if um, those ways that we do that is all an attempt to cover up from the fact that we reject ourselves. It's a big tension that we live in. And here's how Henry Nouwen wraps up his quote. He says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core of our existence. If you hear nothing else today, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. God delights in you. Like, God delights in you. He loves you, right? This is, this is like the core of the message. And if there is a form of self-rejection, it's a great time to evaluate where that is coming from. And so the father has joy, but also the son submits. And there's something I kept questioning as I was reading this passage this weekend. If you've ever read this or maybe you've never questioned this before, uh, just join me here. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says this. John appeared, uh, Jesus' cousin John, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so uh, John the Baptist is, is drawing people in. He's baptizing people. And uh, one of the things that Mark does a very poor job of describing is that uh, he's drawing in crowds. This is like the first megachurch. There's this crowds and crowds of people are coming to be baptized uh, by John in the Jordan. And then it says um, that uh, there's a baptism of repentance. And repentance is like a very misunderstood word, but it, um, it, it's actually really beautiful. It means to turn and to go a new direction. Uh, the, I think the Greek word is metanoia. It, it means I'm heading in this direction, but that's going to cause me destruction. And so I'm going to turn and I'm going to head a new direction. It's action oriented. And we're going to talk about repentance a little bit next week. But Jesus is baptized by John with a baptism of repentance. But why do you need to repent? Because you've done something wrong, right? That's what you, you, you turn and go a new direction because you've done something wrong. Well, Jesus has done nothing wrong but submits to a baptism of repentance. It makes absolutely no sense, right? What does it mean? It means Jesus is already thinking ahead. Jesus already knows what's gonna happen in the rest of this story. He knows what he's going to come and do at the cross. He knows that he's coming to suffer. He knows what he's uh, coming to undertake. And what does he do? He joins us in that repentance. He doesn't need to repent, but he joins us in that. He stands alone in this. I like Carl Barth here. He says, this is what Jesus began to do when he was baptized. It was the opening of his history as the salvation history of all the others. Again, ready? We're participating. Jesus says, yeah, you can participate in my story, but I'm going first. I'm going I'm to lead the way in repentance, even though I have nothing to repent of. He's done nothing, right? Uh, he's called in the scriptures the sinless savior but he's opening up by submitting, and, and by doing that, his life and his relationship is, is open to us. This God is obsessed with identification with his people. 
Could he sit on his high horse and, and skip the whole baptism thing and just tell us, hey, you need to do that. I don't need to do it. I've done nothing wrong. No. He's like, I will go first. I will identify with you in this way. Um, I, I've had a little bit of a back pain for like the last two months. And um, I, I strained it at the gym. It's kind of nagging me. I'm doing stretches and watching YouTube and putting Icy Hot on my back and feeling like I'm 50 or something. Um, but I've been complaining a little bit about it um, to my pregnant wife. Um, my seven-month pregnant wife, uh, she loves to hear me complain about her back pain, right? And um, so she kindly told me uh, last week, she's like, are you really complaining about your back right now? And I told her, I said, I think God sent me this pain so I can feel how you feel. So I can, I can relate to you in this way. So, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying, you know. I want to resonate with you in that way. And that's exactly what God wants to do. He came. He suffered like we do. God knows and understands and resonates with you because he's been where you've been. Are you lonely? So was he. Are you afraid? So was he. Are you broke? So was Jesus. Are you facing death? I, don't, I hope you're not, but Jesus did. Are you struggling to keep life in balance? Jesus did. He was always trying to run away and be with the Father. Do you feel misunderstood? So did Jesus. God has been all the places that we've been. He's been in the darkness you may be in right now. And I think what that means is he, he's done it. He's submitted to that process. I think it means you can trust him. I think it means you can rely on him. I think it means you can go to him and he understands and will listen. But the scripture is not done. This is what's so fascinating. He says, you are my beloved. God, says, God the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is who you are. This is who you are. You're my son. You're my son. You're my son. Over and over and over again. And, and, and we're, we're actually, in, in the weeks to come, we need to come back to this moment. Because the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And Jesus is, is um, consistently rooting himself right here. Everything he does after this is rooted in this moment where he hears the voice from his father. This is who you are. And the way that the author wants to show you that is, is, uh, is by the next verse. It says this in verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out, of the, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. We can't just leave we can't just leave this off. Like you could maybe we could come back to it next week, but that would be that be a lot of of content. You actually take these things in in tandem for a reason. Jesus receives a stable identity, a, a sense of self, a sense of who he is, and the the, the um, and then it says the spirit immediately drives him out. And catch that phrase. I I kind of was wrestling with this this week that um, Jesus wasn't in the wilderness like as an attack on him. He wasn't drawn out or pulled out by, um, by Satan. Mark is careful here. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And the other thing is, is if you've read this passage before, it, uh, I think in Matthew it says that he was there for 40 days. And I'm like, oh man, 40 days. Well, he was tempted for 40 days. It wasn't like uh, the, the, um, the tempter came to him just, you know, the three times that's listed in Matthew. But actually, it's a, a repetition. And Jesus is fasting, right? I last like an hour fasting. And, and I start to, you know, like it's like the Snickers commercials where so, like the person turns into like the, the actual diva. And I'm like, that is me. All right. 40 days. 
out in the wilderness, receiving the full force of what it means to live in the fallen world. And, um, and Mark says, uh, there's this really interesting phrase. It says, he was with the wild animals. And uh, in the Roman world, um, that phrase uh, would have been comforting to the, to the Christians in Rome. Because uh, if, if they were persecuted far enough, they would be thrown to the wild animals. And um, what Mark is trying to do here is he's saying, hey, um, if you're being persecuted, so is Jesus. He, he understands what's that, what that's like. But see, baptism and wilderness are connected here. One prepares us for the other. One prepares us for the other. It, it, it means I'm going out into the wilderness. Life is going to be hard. I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be tested. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget your baptism. Don't forget the words that God spoke to you. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So Jesus is like shouldering us. He's like, I got you. I'm, I'm going to go before you. I get it. Even when life brings you trials, temptations, are they from God? Are they not from God? I, I don't necessarily know. But Jesus has been in that place and he's pushing forward into that place. And he's going to, and we're, we're going to see this in the coming weeks. This is a moment we draw back to. And so what are the, um, what's the baptism moment, right? Um, it, historically in the church, um, depends on what church tradition you come from, there are uh, sacraments, Right, And the sacraments are a visible sign of an invisible grace, a visible sign of an invisible grace. And this baptism one is is one um, to be learned from. In the book of Romans, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so what happens in baptism, and um, if you want to chat further about this, we can, but you're buried, right? It's a funeral. It's a funeral moment. You come up out of the, the water. It's a birth moment. It's a little bit backwards here. And then uh, another passage of scripture talks about how in baptism um, we're united to the larger body. And so what is it? It's a funeral. It's a birth. And it's a wedding. And it's this ability to be um, identified with the person of Jesus, and he submitted to this. And so that, um, that act of baptism is a really powerful marker. Even going back to the beginning, it's a, a rite of passage of, of sorts in uh, the journey of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then the sacrament of baptism is important in the church, but also... That of communion, which I want us to participate and partake of today. Again, it's a visible means, right? Like we're getting actually the tangible nature of the sacrament. And each week at church, we're going to be practicing this act of communion um, together to rehearse this good news. We're, We're getting sucked up into the story. And here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. And so I love these four words here. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. And this is where we'll wrap up today. And I love this idea of taking something, right? It's, um, it's possessive, right? You're like, oh, that's, that's mine. I'm, I'm taking that. And that's actually what has what uh, taken place with Jesus' baptism. 
he's like, I, Jesus, like, you're mine. You're my son. I'm taking you. And um, the Bible calls us a chosen people. And so the same things that are said about Jesus are said about us, that, that we are chosen. And then we're blessed, right? God calls us beloved. And Jesus is claiming that blessing. And then um, this idea of being broken. This is really important. As, 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 as hard as it may be to acknowledge our own brokenness sometimes, this is key. Jesus was broken. He got what we deserve so that we might get what he deserved. And then lastly, given, right? Given to the world by God, Jesus was. God is a generous giver. God gave, right? And so um, if you want to grab those um, communion cups... You just want to hold it in your hand for a second. That phrase is so great. A visible sign of an invisible grace, right? It's visible, it's tangible, it's, you can smell it. I'm going to pray and then I'll, I'll read these instructions um, and we can take this together. We can sing and, and then we'll be sent out of here. So God, some of us needed to hear today that um, we are your beloved. Some of us need to, um, to walk out of here and to go sit down and to think about the ways in which that we are trying to create or concoct an identity apart from um, who you've called us. And so, God, I pray that even right now would be a moment of that repentance. It would be turning back towards um, you, and that would be rooting us back, that, that, that we could go back to work secure, sure of who we are, and we could be fully ourselves uh, not clamoring for attention or promotion, but that we would rest in who you are and what you've done.